0: Welcome to Kites and Strings, the podcast about creativity. My name is Steve Plume. My co-host, Catherine Shinnock, and I are both registered art therapists and licensed clinical professional counselors, in addition to being creatives. In this podcast, we explore creativity, paying particular attention to the tension so many people experience when trying to live a creative life. We liken it to that which is present between a colorful, artful kite and its stable, grounded string. Along the way, we interview fabulous guests who have found their own success living their creative lives. Our guest today is film director Graham Watt. He's the director of Scottish television series, Ouija's, which is now featured on Amazon Prime. This very funny TV series is relatable to everybody, especially creatives who are trying to break out of the routine to live a life of consequence and meaning. We learn about the role of the director and we learn about Graham's journey toward filmmaking as a full-time vocation. Grab a popcorn and get set to listen to how Graham Watt grabs the string and flies his kite from the director's chair, holding a clapboard. Action. Well, welcome to Kites and Strings.
1: Thank you.
0: I will say that I've taken in Ouija's and I've enjoyed it thoroughly. Oh, great. And I watched The, the Runner. Oh, really? Ah. Yeah, yeah, which was quite fun. So I've been t- taking in some of your work, which is really cool. The thing about Ouija's, I think it was in one of the episodes where there was a little information about why Ouija's and Glass, glass Ouija's.
1: Yeah, Glass Ouijan, that's right, yeah. I guess help us understand it. How is it Steve needs like?
2: a lot of help. He <laughs> was, mean, he was telling me, he's like, he explained to me where Ouija's came from. And then I was like, okay, but we need, we need more clarity. <laughs>
1: <laughs> okay. So um, the term uh, Ouija is, as you say, uh, short for um, uh, Glaswegian and which is just pretty much the same thing as Chicagoan. Is that right? Is yeah. It, yeah. Uh, yeah. Or New Yorker. It's like the funny thing is, my dad, who is, you know, 86 years old, born and bred in Glasgow, uh, he recently told me that he never actually had heard the term before. But <laughs> as far as I knew, that was just something that has always been around. I mean, it's not meant to be like a derogatory, basically. And nor is the show about any sort of stereotypes. This show is simply about young people living in Glasgow. And the show is called Ouija's just because, you know, it's easy to remember. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't, I, didn't, I didn't come up with the title. Okay. That, that would be the, the the writer, Stephen Arthur, and the co- his co-writer, uh, Matthew Joseph Campbell. Because I guess somewhere I thought,
0: or somebody had told me, or maybe I heard that Ouija's sort of spoke to a certain class of glass. Glaswegian is that incorrect
1: there's a lot of established tv shows uh, from that neck of the woods that there's negative connotations about people that come from that city or people that come from the city are portrayed in a certain light and it's you know it's in reality it's just simply not the case Uh, we just didn't want to do a show about you know stereotypes we wanted to show you know Glasgow in a in a very uh, positive light as a creative uh, and welcoming that, yeah. that's all we really wanted to do you know we just wanted to you know make a show about what is good about the city um and mm-hmm. the struggles that a particular group of young people face i mean i'm maybe going off a little bit off point here but i even heard someone from the states who'd watched it uh, had said that um you know I, I recognize this it's two slackers and their pals versus the world you know, anyone can relate to this
2: <laughs> so that's what i was going to ask you graham i know nothing about Scotland. I could probably pick it out on a map. It sounds like it's really just—it's a relatable show in recognizing that that the struggles people go through are going, creative struggles people go through are similar no matter where you are in the world. And I don't need to understand kind of nuances or slang or like social references. Mm -hmm. If I don't know that about Scottish culture, I'll still be able to get something from. I
1: watched early cuts of the show with my friends from California. One of them is uh, originally from Puerto Rico and didn't understand a word. Although, you know, speaks perfect English and, you know, been living in America since, you know, he was four years old. He yeah. couldn't understand yeah. a word without subtitles. So he was very, very grateful this time around when the series was released, that subtitles were available.
0: Truth be told, I I needed subtitles. Although it's it's really quite fun because once I Once I get into it, it's like, okay, now I'm starting it's starting to kind of settle in. I'm getting it. But but I think speaking to your point, Catherine, I'm glad you mentioned this because yes, it's very relatable and it does really speak to that idea of of people that are seeking to find that balance. I mean, a lot like what this show is about, kites and strings, right? Between living their life and trying to make it in a creative, you know, world and just all the struggles that go along with it. Absolutely.
1: I know very good friends with everybody involved and the struggles however represented in a comedic fashion they're all real you know we all go through it mm-hmm. we have that yeah. desire to be creative that desire to not settle for anything other than being creative the, the world has tried to suppress that like throughout our lives you know we've got this drive we want to tell a story uh, I speaking personally as someone who has, you know, spent most of their life working in call centers, or hospitality, or you, you name it. I always felt that you know there's like, there's got to be more to life than this, and I, I need more. Uh, and again, I know that this sort of thing is necessary, but like you know, whenever I see a PowerPoint presentation or an a one flip chart, like I, I fall asleep
0: <laughs> instantly.
2: I, I feel you. I feel you. Unless someone gets real crazy with their PowerPoint and there's like music and sounds and animations. <laughs> but but you said something, Graham, that really stood out to me. It, it sounds like what you're saying is like a, a creative person, person who has this drive. You feel like that's something that's just kind of hardwired in you. More so than like cultivated or influenced. Like you just, that's how you, that's how you came out, came out of your mom.
1: Uh, I think... I've always been aware of it, but I was always kind of told that it was kind of an issue, you know, overactive imagination, not concentrating mm-hmm. on school work, just drifting, wanting to be somewhere else. My strongest memories from school are seeing anything that was in the classroom that was material that wasn't, you know, like considered learning material. Mm-hmm. Like for instance, there was comic books, like they would be like adventure comics with like long stories.
2: Yeah. Okay. they would
1: have some issues of those things in, in the classroom. And I, I remember very strongly that because it's just like, I didn't have that at home or I couldn't get it. I didn't know where to get it, that sort of thing. Anything that was in the classroom that was not about math or, I mean, English was okay. I I really got to enjoy English simply because of the fact that, you know, I, we got to like write stories. We got to be creative, like our version of elementary school, primary school, yeah, which covers the years elementary to, you know, middle school in classrooms where you're doing, you're not got one particular subject per hour. Like you get that when you go into high school, like, you know, every hour is dedicated or every period of the day, hour of the day is dedicated to a certain subject, be it math or English or science or geography or whatever. But, you know, in primary school, like it's like everything um, all over the course of the day. It's not like split up. You are basically learning about everything. So I think, you know, not having a set period of time it seems it seems a bit more directionless, uh, and I think that actually was better in primary school than I was in high school, because it's like in high school, you're forced to pay attention to one particular subject for a period of time, so there'd be like whole hours of the day where I would just completely check out. Right, right.
2: It sounds like you're someone who really functions much, much better when there are very few boundaries or very, very loose boundaries. And you can, there's more of an exploratory relationship with development and learning and education. And that the more rigid things get, the more like structured with this is the hour, this is the PowerPoint, this is the flip chart, this is the the spreadsheet that pushes you away from what
1: it is. Yeah, very much so.
0: It certainly sounds like Graham and I are cut of the same jib. I don't even want to think about how many hours I've lost daydreaming while in high school. In this next section, Graham talks of how having a one-stop shop helps in his production and creativity. We're also going to learn about how Graham cured the often incurable malady known as procrastination. Hint, he rearranged, focused, found his balance, and then did some juggling.
1: At the moment, I'm working on several projects. I'm, I'm in a studio right now. I have a, like a, a small studio unit that I have, um, and we are essentially here a one-stop shop for you know all things filmmaking. So like we have our mm-hmm. you know, in the background behind me, we have the, the all of our gear. Um, we have a little sound stage over here, behind me here. I, I, I'm trying to do this because I know this will be audio. <laughs> so, so we have four corners of the room. So on this corner where I'm sitting on is the editing and you know music production station. And the other corner here, uh, just to my left, is a workbench um, where we create like miniatures, uh, props, anything else that needs constructed. Mm-hmm. The other corner... Um, has a a miniature sound stage where we can set up green screen and stuff like that. And over here is our gear in the other corner. So that's the four corners of the room. It's 300 square feet. It's not big, but, you know, it just happens to be big enough for what we do. But basically the best thing about this place is that because we have 24 access, I can come here and although we have like you know work that we have to do we have corporate work that we do we have clients we do anything from music videos to promotional videos to our own dramatic stuff like just you know videos for youtube or or, or you know short sketches whatever sometimes i'll come in and it's like and let, if i don't have anything particularly pressing particularly pressing to do i'll just let my own sort of instinct sort of take over what am i in the mood for today what do i feel like doing today what do i feel like working on and just go to the corner of the room that I feel drawn to. I'm, I'm making it. I'm, I'm making it sound like kindergarten. <laughs> it makes it makes perfect sense.
2: Absolutely, and that's what I thought. Like, so when I was a kid, and I would get in trouble, I would act up. Like I was really, really bad at, at behaving in church. <laughs> Pretty much every Sunday after church, I was told to go sit in the corner. I really wish that I was going and sitting in one of your (laughs)
1: corners.
2: Anyone, anyone would have been better than the floral wallpaper in my parents' kitchen.
1: (laughs) I I completely understand that because the whole time growing up, it's just like, I wish things could be a certain way. I wish I could do this more. I wish I could do less of that and more of this. That being said, though, I do believe in uh, discipline and uh, delayed gratification. You know, I said this to another person that I was having a meeting with. I think for me being an adult is realizing that you've had too much sugar.
0: <laughs> right, right. I have not accomplished that. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, I think I agree that idea of delayed gratification. We begin learning that the second they cut the umbilical cord. It's like, "What? I have to wait to be fed?" Yep. You know, and then it's oh, dang. and then from there on it's just like, "Okay, I have to wait." In early school, primary school, you get your grades right away. You have little 1-hour projects and whatever and they give you your smiley face or your hundred percent. And then you do longer projects that get spread out and then you get your grade later. And then you know, let's face it, we get into a job and you have to wait to get your pay.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: It's yeah. all that delayed gratification. That's you yeah, have yeah, to you
1: have to wait to go you have to wait to go home. Right. <laughs>
2: Dang, Steve. I kind of want to just be a fetus again because <laughs> right. whatever I want, I get it instantly.
0: Right. You just sit there and, a fetus you know, is great. Waiting around and <laughs> goo and, and getting <laughs> fed automatically. So but going going back to like these four corners, I, I'm because I, I noticed when I when I watched the the short film Runner, I mean you you were involved in all elements of it. Certainly the directing and the writing and creating of the props. I just see you now moving through each corner of your your space in order to create that film. Yeah. Obviously, it was filmed
1: outdoors, but. Well, I actually didn't have that place uh, back then. I, I, oh, okay. I, I lived in another city and I was still working full time okay. uh, at a, a water company um okay. and it was an admin job and um, i was quite happy with that job because i spent most of my my years in call centers and um you know doing shift work and then just to be able to sit behind a desk and not have to deal with you know that the, the beep going off in the ear constantly like taking about 100 calls oh. a day different environment more relaxed environment you've got time to talk to the people around you as jobs go it's not so bad anytime i got a day off i would I would just dive into something creative i would say i've been given mm-hmm. the gift of time it's like what would it be like if i had time like this all the time so i eventually went to compressed hours where i was only working three days a week the reason why i went compressed hours was to you know spend more time building towards my goal of becoming you know a filmmaker first time in my life i have more time away from a job in a week than i'm actually at it yeah but once I was given the gift of that time, procrastination set in, and I wouldn't get really intense with it until the Tuesday. I would go back into work on the Wednesday because I worked Wednesday, Thursday, Friday. I would have the Monday and Tuesday off, um, mm-hmm. and I would just, you know, watch movies or do whatever I wanted over the weekend and whatnot. But I knew that that wasn't sustainable. So eventually, it was taken out of my hands. This earlier this year, I was um, made redundant from um, their job because of you know the pandemic. Turns out that our company wasn't immune to the effects of it and they, they offered us a chance to apply for another job within the company but i just didn't want to put myself through that again i saw an opportunity here to, to make a jump you know with the redundancy money i was able to like sort of set myself up to give myself some breathing space for for three four months to where actually things started to happen here now that i'm doing this every day i can't imagine a time where i was ever asked to do something else where i was ever responsible for anything else because time in here just evaporates well-
2: And so do you have the procrastination problem now? Because it sounds like when you were split, right? You're working your like string job and your kite job. You needed that limit of like Tuesdays is when you would do it. But now that you're seven days a week, where's the procrastination?
1: The procrastination comes from like, you know, I can maybe do it later. But the thing is, you realize very, very quickly that you need your weekends. You need your downtime. Um, I found recently that the adrenaline comes from being in from been involved in so many different projects and such a variety of work as well because like it's like it's one day we're doing an animation the other day we're doing you know miniature work another day we're doing you know promotional stuff for clients another day we're filming a gig and then having a meeting with this person I've got a proposal for that thing and you know a, a, like a concept meeting for this and then you know just all the other responsibilities I have I have two parents at home who are elderly so I'm sort of you know helping out there and um, that whole balance There's no real time structure to it. I don't have like a working week. So last night was obviously Sunday. So I'm here till like, you know, half past 10 at night. And then last week I was working on an animation. I was in Saturday until half past one in the morning. I do tend to procrastinate with some of the stuff that I've got, like I'm committed to do, like, you know, some of the work that I'm doing and I'm using Dare I say the excuse that, you know, if I'm not in the mood, I'm not going to be able to do it to the best of my ability. That's where the procrastination comes in. Like I'll put something off that I have to do because I have that freedom. And that's when I need to rein myself in. Sometimes you have to actually force yourself to get into that mindset of I have to do that. And to be honest with you, it actually quite works. Yeah.
0: I think that there's something to that. I mean, being scheduled and having a a tight time frame we're waiting to that last minute i mean we may call everything up to that last minute procrastination but i think in that last minute there's an adrenaline rush right when you're trying to get things done in the 11th hour and i think that that's almost like a drug Yeah, you want that that whether we call it in the zone whether we call it an adrenaline rush or whatever and we do our best work in those
1: moments well there's a zone there's also flow yeah that's a thrill Yeah. yeah That actually, what you said, reminded me of something I'm listening to. I'm actually listening to the unauthorized uh, oral history of Star Trek.
0: <laughs> yes. so, so I'm on
1: I'm on Star, the, the, the chapter that deals with Star Trek II, The Wrath of Khan, uh, a, a finer movie within Trekdom mm-hmm. there isn't. Nicholas Meyer uh, was uh, the director of that movie, also wrote it, but he was uncredited on it. They actually, like because there was such a rush to get it done, they, it was like twelve. Um, days or something like that to get the script finished. Wow. All the other drafts of the script had, you know, they weren't working. So they brought Nicholas Meyer in, in spite of being a like a second time director, relatively inexperienced in the industry. One thing he did have in his locker was he was a fantastic writer. Then he whipped that script into shape uh, by all accounts within twelve days. But that wasn't time enough to get his Writers Guild of America work uh, contract in place. Oh.
2: Uh... So he went uncredited,
1: everyone knows he wrote it, but like he went uncredited it, but he spoke when he was talking about in that book, he spoke about, you know, there's a real adrenaline rush when you're getting, I think that sometimes when your back's against the wall and you've got that Mm -hmm. adrenaline, like magic can happen. Okay. So maybe Graham
0: hasn't cured procrastination, possibly because like me, he chases the adrenaline dragon. In this next section though, like the good therapist she is, Catherine will push Graham to look at positive motivations, personal connections, and she's going to use just a dash of measured self-disclosure. We will also hear a reference and a big shout out to Jurassic Park. And it gets me thinking about last week when guest Jason Hines referenced the puppet work in that film. Hmm, sounds like it's time to cue that film up again.
2: What motivates you? What gets the ball rolling? Because once it's rolling, it sounds like it's good. What I heard motivated you was an obligation to other people, recognizing your sense of responsibility to others and connection to others. So I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Like, what are the things that motivate me to start Mm -hmm. something, right? If I don't have to do it? Because again, the procrastination, I think we've all Mm -hmm. felt that at some point. I think every single paper that I wrote in college, I wrote the (laughs) night before. What motivated me was the limited time. But I I guess that's the question is like, what, what motivates you? What motivates you to get started on something?
1: I think it's because I'm in some level, I think I'm trying to prove something. I'm not the sort of person like... I heard somebody say once that real creativity can't, I'm, I'm, I love seeing anyone that knows me and anyone that's listening to this that knows me says, or oh, Graham says that all the time, but <laughs> <Yes>. <laughs> real creativity can't exist in an environment where failure is not allowed. So I'm constantly worried, not worried, but concerned that I might fail with it. I'm just trying to get better. I'm trying to replicate what I see on on the screen. You know, When I'm doing something, I'm trying my best to replicate what is there because I know if it doesn't convince me, then it's not going to convince others. It all comes down to, and I don't know if this answers your question or not, but the reason I wanted to be a a filmmaker is, is... I want to give other people the feeling that I get when I sit in the theater, or we call it the cinema. Obviously, mm, yeah. When I have that moment, a lot of it is emotion. Like I'm a very emotional person, like, and that's a lot of what drives me. I want to make people happy, not in the sense of pleasing everybody, but I want to make, I want to be positive. I want to I want to spread positive vibes. I want to give people the feeling these films gave me. So the very first time I saw Jurassic Park, even though I had never heard that music before, it sounds like music you've heard before. Now I have friends that would say that's because, you know, John Williams is repetitive and he rips people off, but I don't, I'm not, I'm not having that for one (laughs) second. I'm like, when I sat sat in there and it just makes you feel so good. It's so mm. pure. It's I, I love that feeling, and it's that that I try to do when I create something. You know, I, I, you know, whether it's succeed or fail, that's always what I'm after. You know, I like the. I'm a very visual person, but I'm also a, a very auditory person. Is that yeah, the right yeah, way to say yeah. it? I can be sitting in the car and I can feel quite down, quite depressed. But even though I know that all I really need to do is put on some tunes. And then that will lift me straight away. I don't do it. You know, I'll sit there for ages before realizing, you know, music's what's needed here. So much the same way when I'm working on something, it's like I'm sitting here under pressure because I don't have anything done. A lot of my anxiety I've realized recently comes from the fact that a lot of my work has to do with creating something that doesn't really exist yet. I know you could probably say that about anything but Mm -hmm. just like having to go and figure out how to actually create something like if i'm creating like a miniature scene like someone's just said i want it to be kind of like this but like they're relying on me to actually figure out how to do that or turn their inkling of a vision into an actual vision so like i'll sit there and it's like it's not been created yet and what's stopping that from happening well i'm just sitting here not doing anything so if i sort of break through that wall and just go for it i might fail I might succeed but you know along the way I kind of figure it out for a very very long time especially with like building stuff um you know I'm a very sort of learn by doing my colleague um yeah. uh, Drew um who I work with in the studio he's the sort of person that will look at YouTube tutorials um and real sp- really spend a lot of time whereas I like to really attack something and I like to you know um sometimes I don't know what I'm making until I start building it interesting take on motivation,
0: on how possibly the means for igniting that spark might be different from not only one person to the next, but possibly different for the same person from one situation to the next. In other words, some need the structure of box or frictions, other need the wide open empty page, and for some it may just depend on the time of the day, the weather, or what they had for breakfast that morning. Oh, that elusive motivation for creativity, such a slippery being. Next up, we jump into the role of director and trying to understand just what the director does. A lot of people, when you think of art, and we've talked about this before, about how structure helps and provides a friction. So the idea of a big, empty page is intimidating, but it sounds like there's sort of a, a challenge that you see in that. And, and maybe that's true or not. And you can speak to that. But I also want to get to that idea of, of being the director. And as you were talking about the music and and the auditory components, and of course, we know when we're talking about film, we're talking visual. And you're also talking about the linear, kind, con- you know, the time yeah. element of when things are going to happen. The director is responsible for all of that. Uh- from what I gather,
2: sure. what does a director do, Graham? I just heard all the words that Steve said. I feel like I had my vision of it. I feel like that's the like the Oscars, like the best directors, like the fancy award. But I really have no idea what that person does.
1: <laughs> In a nutshell, uh, the director um, has to oversee, you know, the 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 day to day on the set. Um, he's the person who calls action, the person who calls cut, the person who decides that it's you know time to move on. We've got it. Is it the, the director basically has to you know make what is on the page uh, go onto the screen uh, in a satisfactory way. Mainly that involves working with the actors to get that performance out of them. Um, the technical side of things is dealt with by the people who. Who, who do that so the director of photography he deals with the whole camera side of things and you usually have an assistant director a first assistant director who basically frees me up to do my job which is to get the performance needed from the actors if you think of any particular I mean think of one right now think of a scene from a movie preferably one that I've seen any any scene <laughs>
2: So you've mentioned Jurassic Park And and what popped in for me Just now when you said that Was the scene where the kids are in the car The T-Rex is out there And so they're like in the car And the little blonde girl is like She's like you can feel the terror That's a
1: classic example Spielberg is fantastic with children And I think he himself said That it's because he's very childlike So to take it back a little bit further If you look at E.T. And the way he got that performance Out of you know Thomas, I think his name was. Uh, Elliot, Elliot. yeah. (laughs) But um, he would spend a lot of time with those kids. The shot E.T. chronologically, actually, to make it simpler for the kids to understand so they actually could see the progression of the story. Interesting. So that scene that you're talking about in Jurassic Park, he would more than likely have... Given her some kind of motivation for that. Another example. Sorry to go away from that particular scene. I've, I've sort of I've led you into that scene, and I'm taking you a yeah, bunch of others. Okay. So, Close Encounters of the Third Kind. You know the scene where the, the little boy comes into the the room, and uh, there's you know there's there's all sorts of noises and lights going on inside the house. You can't see it because you only see the little boy who's in his house. He's gotten up out of bed. He walks into the kitchen. It's that classic shot where he opens up the door, and you mm-hmm. see all the lights in the background. Right before that, uh, there's a bit where he walks into shot and he's looking at, at both sides of the room. You can't see what's what he's looking at because it's off camera. You just see his reactions to it. And he's like uh, afraid. And then he looks at uh, to the other side and then he's happy. And the way they did that is they had one of the crew dress up in a gorilla costume. When he saw the gorilla, he's like, oh, look like at that. And then he went to the other side of the room and then uh, and there was something else there. But when he came back, because he wanted them to be afraid at this side of the room first, so he's looking to the side of the room and he's afraid. When he comes back to it, he wants them to be happy again. So the guy takes the, the head off. Of the gorilla costume and it's someone on the crew that he recognized and you know um and, and liked so even though he was a little boy all they had to do was basically dress someone up in a gorilla costume and basically have him take the head off it's just like oh you're not scary you're, you're you're my friend that kind of thing so it
0: sounds like what you're saying is that the director kind of manipulates the actors to get them to be to be the most they yep. can be in their character and there's other people yeah. that are involved with deciding or do they decide or I don't know who decides if there's going to be an explosion here or what size of explosion? Does the director have a lot of say in those types
1: of things? The director has a say in every aspect of that. Uh, If it's on the script, the director will decide where and how that will happen in consultation with the people that make that happen. The director decides pretty much Mm -hmm. where everyone stands. That's called blocking. Uh, And this will be in collaboration with the actors as well. And the actors will have their own thoughts on this. But at the end of the day, the director is, you know, depending on your directing style. um, I tend to sort of be quite, you know, a bit of give and take. I'll put my foot down if I think something needs to go a certain way. If you look at a script, there's not a lot of information there apart from dialogue. It will set the tone. It will tell you what type of day it is. It will say the who. if someone's nervous. It will say if somebody's happy. It will say all those things. But what it doesn't tell you is kind of really where everyone is. It doesn't tell mm-hmm. you what the scene kind of looks like, what you want the camera movement to be like. You know, Do you want it to be energetic? Do you want it to be still? All those things. Spielberg does a lot of like static wides where everybody's in the f- is in the frame at one time, and other people like you know, Paul Greengrass, it's documentary style, so the camera's like making you seasick because it's all over the place. How it looks is something that he'll do in um, consultation with the, the director of yeah. photography, you know, the lighting, that sort of thing, the mood. But you know, the director is the, the person who it's their call. Certainly, then they do more than manipulate the people, it's creating the feel
0: taking the words and turning it into something visual using whatever tricks they need to do in order to make that happen.
1: Yeah. So does that answer your question?
0: I think it does.
2: (laughs) Yes. So clearly, Graham, so clearly that like, I, I work with some people who are directors and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. But now I can be like, mm-hmm. oh, and we'll get to, to Ouija's. But essentially my takeaway from that is it makes sense that you are such an emotional person. I can't imagine a director being someone who is not an emotional person because I really feel like what what you described your job is the way I heard it was to like pull empathy out of paper out of words out of actors out of Mm. like scenery out of placement and really like give me as a viewer an experience and an emotion
1: sure yeah I I have to believe it that's the thing about it it's like if I don't believe it if I'm not laughing at it I'm like an open book people will know when I'm satisfied because I'll usually laugh up with excitement and that's when everyone knows that it's a really good take mm-hmm, or mm-hmm. i at least i think it's a really good take um so I, i'm full of spielberg references, but uh i think it was david lean the guy who shot um uh, i mean I'm, i apologize if i'm wrong about this but the guy who shot um he was the director of lawrence of arabia which was Spiel- the reason spielberg became a film filmmaker and i think david lean told spielberg there's going to be times on set where you're not going to know what the hell you're doing and um, everyone's going to be looking at, to you for answers um, and you're not going to have a clue what you're doing. You have to guard that secret with your life. And <laughs> you have to make everything look uh, everything look as though what just happened was exactly what you intended to happen. Loads of respect for the director.
0: Now we're going to dig more into the Ouija's and how Graham created the environment and feeling behind this show, which focuses on the lives of two millennial actors looking for their big break, all while navigating relationships, paying rent, and life in general. If you haven't seen it yet, please check it out and see how it parallels so many creative types, including Graham himself. Oh, and be on the lookout for more glowing commentary on Legos. Hello, Lego? Kites and Strings here. Everything up to this point has been on the house. But just think of what we can do if you stepped it up and became a sponsor of Kites and Strings. Call me. I think that that's what you do successfully with Ouija's. I mean, I get a sense for what that space feels like. All the way down to things like, you know, I think there's a hot dog stand that they walk by. And I get the sense of this being just this little pocket hot dog stand in an industrial park somewhere that probably everybody in that industrial park goes to for lunch. So I get that feel when I'm there. There's another component about Ouija's that I think, because I know you're the director and there's other people that have the writing credits. But from what you were talking about earlier, working at a call center which is what the two main characters, I think, do in this this show. Was that just coincidence? Total coincidence. Wow. So you're directing this show that seems to be very autobiographical, <laughs> possibly for you, and I'm going to guess... Also for the actors.
1: Yeah, no, I've kind of blocked all memory of uh, those scenes out <laughs> because of, you know, a little bit of PTSD with um, having worked in, in in call centers. No, in all seriousness, like that was, you know, again, written um, independently of me. I don't even think that I needed to give any notes on how to, you know, be a convincing <laughs> call center worker. Because it doesn't even matter if you haven't worked in a call center, everyone can relate to working in that type of environment. They can at least relate to the fact that they don't want to work in that type Mm -hmm. of environment. So, no, that was, you know, little little or no involvement from me. They they, they had it down.
0: Not to say that what you, by any means, what you like in Ouija is as simple, but I'm going to guess that a lot of people working in that setting, because it just taps into their reality. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Right. I mean, it's something that they they all know kind of almost firsthand. Yeah. Is that an accurate
1: ass- you very much, very much so an accurate assessment, especially the people that exist within that sort of scene, mm-hmm. you know, struggling actors, uh, anyone in the entertainment industry trying to make it with their or just being creative, like whether they're a musician an actor a writer whatever yeah everybody relates to um having that dream but you know not being able to achieve it because life gets in the way yeah and you just you know you find yourself at the end of the day with very little energy to to do any of those things i mean one of my earliest memories is um, being in school just absolutely counting the minutes so i could get up the road and play video games mm-hmm. you know or whatever else that i wanted to do that wasn't school that led to a lot of anticipation so basically when i did get out of work i'm like right okay i'm going to have to make this count so because i i desperately want to do it so i had that energy but a lot of people like because of the situation that they find themselves in there's a monologue in the series that kind of touched on that it's the bit about they work their shite jobs you know for, for basically for for shite money in order to afford shite that they don't yeah. need yeah um <laughs> I think everybody can relate to that. You know, you're so jaded from work that when you get out, you've got no energy, but um, I I kind of fought against that. And I made sure that, you know, like a lot of us did, you know, like, I mean, we all live or lived very tiring lives and with a lot of responsibilities, it takes an awful lot to maintain that enthusiasm to be able to do something. When you get out of work, you still want to do something other than go home and, you know, drink, you you do to recover from work. I just bet some of us somehow manage to, you know, go out of that environment, you know, after a long commute and still find the energy to be creative.
0: I think there are people that are really, they're driven. I mean, even though they may be tired as all get out because of their job, their, their, what they need to do to pay the bills job. Sure. But they still find that energy because there's a drive. Yeah. There's such a want and there's such a desire. And whether it's a dream or whether it's just an innate need, whatever you call it, it's there.
1: Yeah, very, very much so. I've, all, I've always had it. I, I realized from a very young age I had that that need to explore. Mm-hmm. You're just playing with toys. I loved Lego, <laughs> and you would know, create all these little worlds and absolutely lost in it. And I was always my biggest regret that I never had more Lego than I did. Um, I know you guys call it Legos, but we don't add the S over here for whatever reason. I don't know, (laughs) but um, Graham,
2: we just recorded a podcast with a man who makes sculptures out of Legos. He gave up his career as a a lawyer and is a full time professional artist who sculpts with Legos. I wish I'd done that. he he! what did he say steve he had like 10 million he has 10 million lego oh, blocks available of... to him at any time it's
1: crazy where does he keep it that's that's what i want.
0: <laughs> he actually has two studios i think one in new york and one in <laughs> and and the entire it's
1: space fun. in between is just full, full of lego
0: yeah it's completely <laughs> You can make a road out of Legos between the two. Yeah. Nathan Sawaya is his name.
2: And what it makes me think of is like you, you have your studio with four corners. Mm-hmm. He has a studio full of Lego mm-hmm. blocks. You, you're not constructing a sculpture. You're constructing an experience for, for me as a viewer and like going back to, I think one of the first questions I asked you was like, is Ouija going to be relatable for someone who's not from Scotland. And as we've spoken throughout this, you know, hour or so it's so clear to me that I think anything you make is going to be relatable because what I hear you doing is really connecting into the human experience. And to answer my question of like, what does a director do again? Like, I just hear that you need to have such a deep sense of empathy and and like this ability to tell stories feel feelings and create a sense of fullness for a viewer and it sounds like that's what you've been doing since you were a little. well kid.
1: I mean uh, it hasn't always been playing sailing I remember when I first learned how to play, <laughs> play the guitar like um, uh-huh. I'd learned two chords and I would want everyone to listen Oh, they're probably two very good chords. (laughs) Well, well, this this is this is the thing. Like, it goes back to what I was talking about about the you know knowing that you've had too much sugar because I think as a kid, it's just like oh, I've learned this new skill. I really want to impress someone. And you have to learn that you know you have to find that balance. So yeah, I want to do this. I want to share this with people. I want to you know give them good feelings and whatnot. But you know you also have to learn when you know not to do that or when you're doing it too much or you know you're showing off. Scotland is a very a realistic country uh, and i've listened to one of your previous episodes where this was touched on the difference between the UK and the US where permission is is sought more mm. in the UK whereas in the in the US it it's, it's more it's more freely given um, you have more freedom to explore, you know, your creativity, you know, have more freedom to do something. It's like one of the first things that that I experienced, you know, within myself when I first started making short films was like, I almost had to ask around for permission to do it, you know, from my friends. Is this okay? You know, should I be doing this? And, and mm. of, of course it's okay. It's just like, you don't have to, you want to create something. You just go and do it. You go and make it. And the, the first ever short film that we did, I realized all I had to do was seek out like-minded individuals. I didn't have to force anyone to do something that didn't like my existing friends, you know, some of them were right into it and other people weren't so much. And, you know, maybe I thought that it was just like, Oh, that sounds like a lot of hassle, whatever their feelings towards it. So I would seek out like-minded people. I was in a band. so like the music scene um, that I was part of, a lot of musicians are, you know, shall we say, uh, frustrated actors um, so I had a ready made stable of people so the first ever short film that I made I got called up a friend of mine and I said look I'm writing this short film about a guy who buys a new toaster to replace the old faulty one but the problem is you know there's something supernatural going on and the old toaster gets jealous and tries to kill him <laughs> <laughs> and I phoned the guy up and said I'm you know I'm shooting this this Sunday and you know can we use your apartment and he's like yeah man totally <laughs> like, that's what you want to hear and then I got a couple of other people that were really excited and in being involved and two weeks later, we had our first short film. And then that's just where it started. You know, I'd like started releasing one every two weeks. But of course, as the films got more and more ambitious, it took a little bit longer to produce. So I think in total, we've done about 20 or something like that. Mm-hmm. Ridiculous. Mm-hmm. I, can't, I, I can't even count. But, you know, permission was kind of sought before that because I thought to myself, is this funny? You know, should I be doing this? I'm a, I'm a you know, am I weird mm-hmm. for doing this? You shouldn't care. You should just go out there and do it. I mean, at the end of the day, you have to um, you make that discovery yourself. And if someone doesn't like it, they're going to tell you.
2: <laughs> it sounds like you had a transition at some point where you started off wondering, "Is this funny?" Looking for that external validation. And when you were talking about directing, you're you're like an open book, right? And if you think it's funny, then you know it's good. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, for me at least, I'm not. I mean, like I say, I, I said at one point I did ask, "Is this funny?" But I'm not saying it's funny now.
2: Well, and that's that's <laughs> the whole thing of it. It's subjective, and you can make anything. And some people are going to say it's hilarious, and other people are going to say it's crap. And so, f- to have that grounding in yourself and say, "I I think this is yep. funny," and I know there are other people like yep. me in the world, so somebody's going to think it's funny besides me.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. At the end of the day you're making this for the people that do like it and you're making it for yourself most importantly um you have to like it and you know just we we you have like any other production have mixed reactions to like you noobies know, for example some mixed reactions there but you know overwhelmingly the feedback seems to be really positive mm-hmm. but unfortunately like some of the more negative feedback is a bit nice. louder Um, or at least it appears that way. So trying to remind yourself that you know it doesn't matter what you do if you put yourself out there in a creative space, there's going to be some people that have got an opinion about it that's not in line with your own. And it's just about how you deal with that. At the end of the day, you have to make sure that it doesn't change your own opinion about what you did. If it makes you question your own creativity, if it makes you question um, your own sensibilities, it's like I could tell a joke, right? I mean, I, I won't tell one right now, but I've got jokes that crack me up <laughs> and I honestly do not care if, if someone else uh, doesn't find it funny because oh. I'll find someone who does. And then if I do, that person's a friend for life. <laughs> um, <laughs> I like that
0: example. I mean, right. We have these jokes that we just think are funny. Other people don't get it, but that doesn't change the fact that it makes us laugh still yeah exactly <laughs>
2: love it I also like that that's your your like gauge for friends if you laugh at this joke we're, we're gonna be we're gonna be good we're gonna be friends
1: right there is other is other criteria of course involved? of I mean, course I, I mean I could I could tell that joke in a joke in a maximum security prison <laughs> <laughs> I might meet meet some people with a similar sense of humour but I wouldn't exactly want to have them ruin my house <laughs> you're not gonna hang with them I'm not gonna hang that's with totally them fair. though.
0: I'd like to acknowledge Graham's referencing a past Kites and Strings episode, namely the one with Irish musician Granier Hunt, as it really helps us understand the different climate for creativity in the US relative to the UK. I also love the idea that our kitchen appliances can be emotionally fragile, while Graham expresses a comfort regarding his own sense of humor. I love that his take on humor gives folks like me permission to keep several jokes rattling around in our brain cavity, just waiting for the perfect oppo to release them. Next up, we explore about Graham's transition from what seems to be a pretty common childhood reality for creatives, to his current state of really being happy with where he's arrived.
1: I'm very blessed to have quite a lot of friends. The only reason I say that with openness and confidence is because like I didn't have any friends at all in school I don't know why that was but like it's either they weren't enough people that were like me around me or maybe if they were they were too scared to pop their head out I think that's quite common in school I've run into people that I thought that I knew from my youth that were not nice people or I assumed that they were not nice people just because they hung with a particular you know crowd or whatever but then you meet them later mm-hmm. on and it's like they're a completely different person, you know, and they're like, oh, how you doing? It's like, how, what have you been doing with your life? You know, all that stuff. And it's like, didn't you used to hate me? <laughs> There's not a lot of people that stick their neck
0: out because it's survival in school. It's like social survival. I don't want to go out on that limb too much because I'm going to be judged negatively, even though I still find that joke a little bit funny.
1: It took, it took me a lot of years. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm in my early 40s now. But um, I only feel like I've really sort of developed into the person that I'm sort of meant to be, if you like, over the last 10 years. And my 20s was kind of like nothing like I thought it was going to be. A lot of people get things figured out really quickly, or just at least that's the way it appears to me Um, to find out your your sort of path in life and who you truly are. Um, to be comfortable in your own skin. I'm not saying I'm completely comfortable in my own skin, but like I certainly mm-hmm. feel like the, the biggest thing for me is like, when I wake up in the morning and I realize that I still want to do all this stuff when I feel like there's nothing that I'm missing out on. I feel like I'm, there's nothing else I'd rather be doing. Um, I think the biggest thing, again, here's another cliche for you. I think it's um, another part of being an adult is learning the difference between the journey and the destination. Yeah.
0: Yeah, so it must be great to have kind of arrived at that place where you can, you know, look at what you're doing and say, yeah, this is a this is a great fit. I'm glad I'm doing it. Yeah. and it has to be very validating. I'm going to guess when a show such as Ouija gets picked up by Amazon Prime and
1: well, everything that you said was true. Uh, however you just still feel like there's something else you know and you just you, you keep striving for something that's like you know never settle. that like you always feel like there's just something that little bit more but that comes from always thinking that going back to that bit where you have to prove yourself or you feel you have to prove yourself and um, you know every, every short film that I release every video that I do every new skill that I learn I'm saying well this is good but it, it could also be better yeah. because you're only as good as your last yeah. product
0: yeah so what's next are there
1: more Ouija's? Are there other short we films? We have a short parody uh, video coming out soon. It's a parody of The Ring. And basically it's a guy that calls up his satellite provider because the, the 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 girl from the ring is coming out of his TV. Yes. <laughs> Again, you know, for what we lack in technical expertise or, you know, if we hit the, if we miss the mark, you know, we've, we've got that moxie. The fact that we dared to try. Mm-hmm. Um, working on a few uh, corporate projects, I have an idea for, um, I don't know how much I want to say about it, now, but I have an idea for a first feature film, but it's ridiculously, ridiculously... Oh, it's so ambitious um, but again it's one of these things where we can find the right tone I don't know what, how much detail to go into here but like, basically I'll, I'll, I'll break it down so it's an alternative history 60s well my alternative history is what if the Scots had been the Scottish nation had been a legitimate contender um, with the United States in the race for the moon <laughs> <laughs> in Scotland uh, we have a history of um, uh, glorious failures especially with our sporting teams It's basically that experience, because for years, people, Scottish football fans have followed their country around the world, you know, with little or no hope of success, essentially just going for the party.
2: I love it. (laughs) Lots of hope and acceptance of failure. But what I'm curious about is how how can we watch your short films?
1: Okay, well, on YouTube, like my old YouTube channel is Eight eight Acre Films. Disclaimer, like they are Mm -hmm. varying quality, but, you know. Hopefully, the, after talking to me, you'll, you'll, you'll sort of get the, the, the spirit in which they were intended. Um, for instance, mm-hmm. there's one on there that's like it's a two-episode um, uh, cop drama, um, and I can't even believe it. I feel silly even saying this because it's like this is a sort of thing where like any sane person would have thought to myself, why are you doing that? But me and my friends, we have this ethos. <laughs> See, when you think to yourself, what am I doing? That is the moment you know you're in exactly the place that you're meant to be because it means that you're pushing boundaries. It means that you're outside your comfort zone. We have a two-episode um, short yes. film in there that is entirely in German. None of us speak German. Don't ask me why we came up with that <laughs> idea. So we actually got like a German translator, who a professional translator, to translate our script into German, and we pretended to be German people in this short film. Everyone's like, why is it in German? I'm like, I couldn't tell you
2: amazing that's pretty funny (laughs) I love it all of
1: our films are about you know trying to do something that we've seen there trying to create something trying to be ambitious sometimes succeeding sometimes failing Mm -hmm. but yeah there's because I've been so busy on Ouija's over these past few years there's not really much um, sort of new content that I could sort of steer anybody potentially listening towards but I mean what Mm -hmm. the heck you know go and watch the old stuff
0: (laughs) certainly would love to have them go take a look at that stuff. And hopefully they're going to get a look at Ouija's, which I think is a really fun series. Graham, it has been such a, such a joy talking to you and learning about being a director and turning words into vision and, and stuff that we can all consume and enjoy.
2: Thank you so much. That's
1: been the the time it's been so far. It is actually flown in. (laughs) I I feel like I passed out after the first minute. It's gone by in a blur. (laughs) <laughs> it's been, it's been, I it's been absolutely it. great talking to you guys. Is um, I like, I really like the show. I, I thought this is, this is right up my street. So, thank you. I think, I, I think, I think I found one of my new podcasts. So. Awesome!
2: Woo-hoo!
0: Please share it with your
1: friends. Oh, thank Let you so down. much, Graham. <laughs> absolutely.
2: Have a delightful week.
1: Yeah, you guys too. Thanks very much. Thanks so right, much. Thank you. You bet. Bye now. A pleasure. Bye bye.
0: So there's our episode with filmmaker Graham Watt. It was fun learning about the role of the director, his process, and about how he flies his sense of humor and seemingly absurd ideas through filmmaking. So in addition to watching season one of The Ouija's on Amazon Prime, check out the links that we've provided in the episode description to access his work. Also know that the Kites and Strings website is www.kitesandstrings.com and that you can find us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. You can comment, ask questions, and even suggest future guests using our email, kitesandstringspodcast at gmail.com. And we really appreciate those who help support our podcast through donations via patreon.com. A simple search for Kites and Strings on that site will let you donate as little as $1 a month to help us keep this kite in flight. Kites and Strings theme music is by Harrison Amir, All other music is by Purple Planet Music at purpleplanet.com. Today's episode was produced and edited by me, Steve Plume, at Turning Stones Counseling Inc. Be safe.